Hey everyone, welcome to the Delta Flyers with Tom and Harry. I am your host, Garrett Wong, and your other host is Mr. Robert Duncan McNeil. Robbie! Well, hello there. Hi! Hello. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, you? I want to bring up something from the last episode. So, yes. in our last episode, when we recapped Sacred Ground, yes. you talked about not having a single line. And I said, there's no way. And you're like, nope, I didn't have one. So I did go back and I rewatched. You did not have a single line. I didn't think I did. <laughs> but see, when you, okay, when you said you didn't have one, when we recorded the last episode, yes, you kind of sounded a little bummed out about that. And I was thinking like, wait a minute. Are you were you really upset about that? Because I was thinking that was this because they knew you were directing and they thought we're going to make it easy on him. We're not even going to give him any lines. Was that part of it? You think? I don't think so. I I, I don't think so. But maybe. Okay. Maybe. Okay. But I don't. I don't know. I don't think it was because I was directing. I think one of the reasons they decided to let me direct is it was definitely an episode where I didn't have a lot to do. And I think that gave them more confidence that I could just focus on the directing for the first time. And by the way, I was thrilled, you know, that I had one scene, I think, on the bridge. That was it. Correct. And yeah. I had no lines in that scene. So I was thrilled right. that I didn't have to uh, stress out or worry about a, a big story as an actor. I'm trying to remember if any of the ones I directed, I think Someone to Watch Over Me, which I directed later down the line, I did have a story in that. It wasn't, I wasn't the main story, but I was like a big part of the doctor's story. And right. the doctor was teaching seven you know, about, um, you know, dating and things like that. And I had a lot of scenes with the doctor or a number of scenes with big speeches and all of that. But by that time, I think, you know, I directed a little bit more. I think that was my third episode that I directed. So I was very comfortable doing both. And, uh, I always felt like when I directed, I was more connected to the acting side of things. It didn't really add stress, honestly. Ultimately, it was really easy. Maybe that's something I should have asked Lisa Klink when we had her, you know, just to see. But whether it was intentional or not, you know. Yeah. Um, clearly, it played into them making the decision to ask you because they, they yeah. probably were looking saying, wait a minute, he's really not in this script that much. You know? Yeah. Um, but then that makes me, then that makes me ask you this question because you see film and TV projects all the time where, like, for instance, Mel Gibson in Braveheart, Kevin Costner in Dances with Wolves, they directed their films yeah. and they were the lead in almost every single scene. So yeah. can you just tell our listeners out there and our viewers what happens when you are in almost every single scene and you're directing? Uh, who's watching the, the you know, the, the ship, so yeah, to speak? I, I guess I would say, you know, most movies have... Uh, playback, what they call video playback. After the take, the actors and the director, or, or at least the director and the cinematographer, they may gather after the take and look at the playback to make sure that they got it. In the television world, I've only done one show that ever had playback on set as a regular rule, and they got rid of it after a couple of years. And that was uh, the TV series Las Vegas. And that's just because James Caan was a movie actor and he was used to playback and he he demanded he it. He wanted it. Oh, he I wanted see. to go look okay. at his takes and take a look at it. So in television, playback is not that popular. My point is, 
I bet Costner, those guys had playback on the movies they were doing so they could do the take. They could go back and look at it. They probably also had a team of people around them that they trusted the DP or an assistant or whoever screenwriter, maybe to give them feedback and things like that. Maybe it had an acting coach, all those things. I don't know. And the other interesting thing talking about that on stage nine, back in the old Paramount movie studio days when it was, uh, you know, the studio system was alive and well. Jerry Lewis was a contract player for Paramount Pictures. And Jerry Lewis, a lot of times the stars would have their stages. I may have mentioned this before, but they would have their stages that they were, they made all their movies on, you know, they'd make a movie and then they'd, they had the offices close by. It was just the comfortable, it was a good luck spot for them if they were big stars. Jerry Lewis, stage nine was one of his stages. And he was the one that invented video playback because Jerry Lewis started directing and because he had such physical comedy and and was really a workaholic and a very hardcore about it, he wanted to look at what he had filmed. And he was the very first person on stage nine to invent video playback. So yeah, actors directing themselves has a long history at Paramount Studios. It has a long history going back to Jerry Lewis uh, on stage nine. So anyway. Okay. Just to be a little bit more specific, the video playback, what exactly is that a feed of? Back in the days of Jerry Lewis, it there was no digital. It was 35 millimeter that they shot yeah. on, right? So they shot on film stock. So how are they seeing, what's the technology behind that? Well, the way film cameras worked is you had your camera body, the mechanism that pulled the film. The film sat on top of that in a, in a magazine. Uh, Mm -hmm. The lens attached to the body and between the body and the lens was something called the gate where the Mm -hmm. film was fed through. So there were mirrors, right? The way that you could look at an an eyepiece and it would show you the mirror of the lens was seeing. Correct. One of those mirrors also went to something that was coming up to the eyepiece called a video tab. And it was a little sensor that the mirrors would also reflect an image, the same image that was going on to the film. It would reflect that up into the eyepiece and right attached to the eyepiece was a sensor that would then go out by cable to a monitor and or a recording device of some kind. And that's how they would. So it was kind of this very complicated mirror reflection of what you were seeing through the lens, what the lens was actually capturing on the gate. Yeah. And it was Jerry Lewis that came up with that. That's amazing. And sometimes if, if you remember looking at our monitors back in the day, You'd look at the monitor, but then there would be some lines on the monitor. Correct. Right? And the lines would actually show you where the film image was being recorded. And the reason for that difference Uh, is because the mirrors that would reflect the image up to that video tap signal were Mm -hmm. slightly Mm -hmm. larger than the gate that the film went through. They had to put lines on the monitor to say, yeah, Yeah. your video is showing you this much, you know, this much. But right on the inside of that, there was a line in our image yeah. that would say the film is actually only going this far. Which is so. really crucial because you need to know where the edge of frame is clearly yes, for your image. Yes. You know, if they didn't have those lines, you'd have a lot of finished uh, projects that really were cutting people's heads off and, yeah. and parts of their bodies. Right. So or um, you would have the, the boom you know, sometimes the, yeah, boom, the, boom, <laughs> the boom would, boom would dip out. in Yeah, <laughs> for sound. They would dip yeah. the boom in. And so you would sure. look at the lines and you could sure. say, oh, yeah, I saw the boom, but it wasn't inside. You know, it was in video safe, I guess they used to call it. You know, it was right. in that space. That's actually a hobby for some people, Robbie. They actually look at film and TV projects to see when the boom 
you know, uh, right. dips into frame by mistake. And that's, that's, that's joy for certain people to catch these little <laughs> glitches <laughs> that happen. Thank you for that little lesson there. It was fun. I hadn't thought about all those issues in years. And just to announce the, uh, the Voyager documentary actually surpassed the Frank Zappa documentary crowdfunding number mm-hmm. to become the number one crowdfunded documentary of all time. So it made it. I'm wearing wow. a Delta Quad Space Tour shirt right now. But, uh, <laughs> congratulations to the Voidoc. All right. So this week's episode is part one of Future's End. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we should go watch this. All right. See you guys after. Bye. All right. See you guys. Stay tuned for your bonus content, Patreon patrons. Hey, guys. We're back from watching Future's End. Part one. Mm-hmm. Yes, we are. Oh, my goodness. 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 What an epic. Woo. There's a lot of stuff going on in this episode. Absolutely. Written by Brandon Braga and Joe Minoski, directed by David Livingston. Now, even though I've always said haikus are easier than the limerick, Uh I struggled this time and I actually have two endings. So we know, you know, a haiku is 17 (laughs) syllables, five five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. So my first two lines are the yes. same, but I came up with two different endings. I love this. So, there's an alternate ending haiku. An alternate <laughs> ending haiku. Well, so give me the we original go. and then then read it um, okay. from the beginning with the alternate ending, okay? okay? Voyager is home. It's the 90s in LA. Time is inside out. Oh, I like that one. That was my that, You could have left it with that one. There was another thing in this episode that was very important and okay. dear to Let's me. Hear so, Let's hear it. Here we go. Alternate ending. Voyager is home. It's the 90s in LA. Neelix watches soaps. Because <laughs> I was on a soap opera. I was on a yeah. soap He loved his stories. When you're a soap watcher, you will call them your stories. Okay. Yes. And I, I, I got to be honest with you. In that B story where Neelix is watching the soap operas, I kept thinking, I thought about you and I thought about, God. Why didn't they just take a scene from your actual (laughs) soap opera when you were on? Uh You know what I'm saying? So we could hear your voice. What was your character on on the soap again? Charlie Brent on All My Children. Okay. So, you know, and then for Neelix to go like, I don't know what Charlie's going to do in this situation. And he's totally referring to your actual character that you played would have been even better. Here's my limerick. Let's hear the limerick. Here we go. Future time ship causes trouble. Right place, wrong time in a bubble. Chess match with Henry, no one would envy. Will Mother Earth live or crumble? Nice. Yeah. You got a lot in there. I you did. got a lot in that limerick. I, I really did. But I still yeah. feel very unsettled doing limericks. I feel like my natural poetic self is Expression a haiku. Okay. Yeah, my, that, that's my natural expression. So okay. um, I'm, I'm going to, like I said before, I'm going to pass it back to you at some point, whether it's season four or five, I'm not sure yet, but I I will pass it back to you. Okay. I want to open up this throwback scene with an ASMR. Can I just do it ASMR style? Yes, please do. We haven't done this in a while, ASMR. No. Okay, here we go. We open with a throwback scene from 1967, set in the high Sierras with Ed Begley's character on a solo camping trip. He sits cross-legged as he plays the drums on his canteen and metal pot. His drum routine is interrupted by the sound of a sonic boom. A lone spacecraft hurtles towards the densely wooded mountain range. 
The luminous glow from the crashed time ship lights up Henry's face. He can't believe what he is seeing. The only words he can muster are far out. Nice. That was very dramatic. Was that Ed Begley in the makeup for that scene? I think it was. That was Ed Begley. That yes, was Ed Begley was. in the in yeah. the 60s hippie makeup. Yes. That's but crazy. I made a note later, and I'm going to say it now, that I really wished Ed Begley was given a dark wig, you know, to further just distance himself from his current character later mm. that you see him with the short yeah. hair, maybe with the darker wig, you know, yeah. or something. Because yeah. they do do that sort of premonition of showing the tattoo on his wrist, right, when he's yeah. camping, and then that later shows up. Oh, uh, that's again. Right. I didn't I forgot yeah. about that. I saw that was the reveal. Scene and I'm like, why are we why are you <laughs> making a thing out of this? I didn't catch it in the first scene. So there you yeah. go. Yeah. Did you also catch when he has his transistor radio on before it gets distorted by the uh, time shift coming through? Yes. There's a news report talking about an anti-war student protest at UC Santa Cruz. And the significance of this is that Brandon Braga went to college at University of California at Santa Cruz. So he utilized oh, this news report on this transistor radio that Ed Begley's character is listening to as a, a news report about his college, you know, back from 1967, wow, which cool. is pretty cool, I think. That's very like cool. That. The very first image that you mm -hmm. see in this episode is a painting of the lake and it's kind of reddish. Correct. I've got to yes. say, I thought it looked a little fake. Like, yes. I was like, ah, oh, that's too bad. It feels yes. very old fashioned. Mm -hmm. uh, once we went to the live, you know, the film and, and the scene yeah. itself, uh, it actually, oddly enough, we shot it in our cave set, but it had this amazing interactive light of the spaceship coming over his head. Yeah. It was very well done by Marvin Rush's team. Yep. Everything was good, but I was I was surprised at that first opening shot, that sort of establishing shot of the lake. It just looked like it looked cartoony or something. I don't know. I agree. I agree. It didn't bother me as much as later. When we get to that, I'll talk about the cartoony image that I saw later. You're yeah. right. It was a little like, eh, they could have done a better job at that just yeah. a little bit, right? Yeah. We move on to Janeway's ready room where she's practicing her serve with that futuristic tennis ball, which was really just a ball that had had springs attached to it on the outside I, all around. I remember that prop. I remember yes, me too. seeing <laughs> that on set. And I remember going, this is super cool. This is cool, yeah, because you can bounce it because of the springs, right? Yes. Which I thought, oh, this is amazing. They've really, they've really gone to the next level of, of envisioning what a futuristic tennis ball would look like. But you know right? what's funny? I remember holding that and, and thinking mm -hmm. it was a super cool prop. Yeah. But I also think that they bought that. I think that's, it was oh, a thing. Really? I don't think they made it. I think it was oh, a man. thing that they found. Yeah. A ball that someone has created or did yeah. create at the time that was kind of huh. looking. Yeah, I, I think that was a made thing. I don't think we created Okay, okay. But I thought it was strange that, you know, the captain is practicing tennis in her office. Like, where is she going to hit well, the ball? Yeah, I mean, that was immediately my first thought was, why aren't you on the holodeck on a yeah. tennis court doing this? Why are and you doing this, right? And she said and then, that she played in a tournament and lost in the tournament or something like that. Well, she said um, she played in high school, which is not believable because I did play high school tennis. But if you watch Janeway, she's not holding the, the racket 
properly. It's where you would hold it if you were five years old and, and, and you couldn't handle the, the weight of the racket. It's, it needs to be further <laughs> And it was down. an odd looking racket. It almost looked like, what do you call that paddle ball that you play at the beach? Yeah. Yeah. yeah like a paddle ball racket mixed like with a paddle. tennis racket, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Like a and hybrid she said racket. She played in high school, but she hadn't played in mm. 19 years. Yeah. Which I think so, is interesting to like, is that since high school? So is that how old we're saying? Captain Janeway was at this point or well if you add 18 to 19 what do you get you're at 37 right now right, right. so right. she's a 37 year old captain does that, does that seem correct to you seems a little young mm, yeah I, I think young. it's a little young I do but uh I she do. said she hasn't played in 19 years and that she right. lost a novice tournament on the holodeck so she was determined right. to get back into it but anyway get back into it yeah I, I thought it was weird that she's practicing that because we never that I can remember we don't no. ever see her play tennis again. And Heck I think no. that would have been really interesting. I would have loved that. You if know? that had been her holodeck instead of the romance novel, I would have loved it. Like she became yeah. a pro, pro tennis player. We do establish one thing. We establish one fact. Tuvok has fast reflexes. <laughs> oh, yes, he does. <laughs> he just catches that ball like it's mm -hmm. nothing. He's really, really, he's very physically impressive in this episode, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is one of his uh, cool things that he does in this episode. We'll talk about the other one later. So we're basically called onto the bridge. Janeway asks for a report, and there is some sort of spatial rift that is opened up right in front of Voyager. And Kim's very first techno babble of the episode in answering Janeway's line analysis is, it's a distortion in the space-time continuum, but it's got a graviton matrix. It's being artificially generated. So now we're wondering, what is this? And we see Braxton's time ship appear for the very first yeah. time. Uh, he didn't say anything. All he does is uh, he starts firing at us, a subatomic disruptor. Well, they do and say we know that. They say it's a federation. It's federation. Kim says it's federation. Yeah. yeah. And so we're like, hey, he's going to help us get back home. Right. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, when you're watching this episode for the first time, you're thinking, this is great. This is how they this is how they're going to figure out how to get back. And then that guy starts firing at us. Mm -hmm. So we're wondering what is happening now. This is where I see the other cartoony um, image. When Braxton fires the subatomic disruptor at Voyager, yeah. you see a graphic of a circular sort of. It honestly, it looks cartoony, anime-ish, and frankly, it reminded me of the Adam West era Batman TV series. Whenever you see bam, pow, kapoo, you know, wow. it was like that to me. Interesting. I thought it was a little unusual because of the the time element, you know, the time travel, time ship element. I thought that's where I went with it. I thought it was just a different look to the weapon really? things. Yeah. Okay. Although I did notice in his time ship, by the way, yeah, this is pre-Delta Flyer. Tom Paris has not designed the Delta Flyer yet, but Correct. he does later on, and it looks a lot like this time ship, if you think about it. There is similarity there. There's some There's similarities similar. there in, <laughs> in the Delta Flyer shuttle to this yeah. time ship, which was 29th century, right? So he contacts us, and he says that he's a Federation time ship, and his mission is Voyager's destruction. Yeah. And that dun, Voyager dun, dun. was responsible for this temporal explosion that destroyed the entire solar system. Huge yeah. accusation that a piece of the ship was found afterwards and that he's sent to stop Voyager from destroying the solar system. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> you notice how Janeway responds. She's like, uh, I'm going to need a little bit more facts than that. Yeah. yeah, and then he screams, "No time!" Which reminded me of the caretaker from the original uh, 
episode when we're thrown across the galaxy, he always says, you know, no time as well. So there's yes. this no time reference once yes. again. He asked the Voyager to disengage their deflector pulse and let him destroy the vessel. But she says, uh, absolutely not, and responds with force. And eventually Voyager overpowers this time ship. Uh, Braxton loses control of it and the graviton field starts to collapse and mm -hmm. it sucks Braxton's ship back into it and it sucks yep. Voyager into it. No. And we sort of yeah. wake up and disoriented. We kind of look around and outside the window is Earth. And yes. this is the moment where I was like, oh God. <laughs> Janeway says something like, where are we? And I turn around and I say, home. With a no, smile. you say, it's home. You it's, say, it's home it's is what home. you say. It's home. Now, here's what I got to say. I know, see, you didn't experience this much. Nobody else did because they didn't <laughs> sit in front of the view screen. But we never did the view screen shots when we were filming these scenes. That would require us to put the wall in with the view screen yeah light the green screen and turn around. And so yeah. we would always just shoot the scenes with a camera looking at all the actors. And yeah. we would always save those green screen shots for weeks, sometimes months, sometimes later. like a month or two later, <laughs> Yeah, that we would film a list of a bunch of second unit shots of the view screen. <laughs> I was always there by myself. Yeah, and I no was one doing, to act off of. <laughs> with no one to act off of. And I'm doing multiple episodes where it's like, okay, now from episode 306, do this line. And I'm like, what was that again? What, where? It's impossible to track, clearly, because totally you don't remember impossible anything. impossible <laughs> to track. You can look at my hair in that shot. And it's a totally different it's haircut. the same hair, yeah. <laughs> Nothing looks the same about me or anything. The lighting is different. And I turn around and clearly had no context. So I was like, I don't remember what was happening. I don't, you know. And, and by the way, there was rarely a director there. So there was usually Doug Knapp and me and maybe Dan Curry. Okay. Who's doing a bunch of shots. <laughs> right. And so nobody to really say, yeah, you were coming out of this intense moment. Right. Before. Nobody to tell you no. what was the moment right before. No context. And that's usually the director's job. The director's job is to, to help, mm -hmm. you know, to have continuity in the acting. And without a director there to tell Robbie what he's supposed to be doing, it's literally a crapshoot what he comes up with, you know, what he says. So are you trying to tell me that your comment, it's home, sounded off? Or it was horrible. It, just it was maybe really? one of the worst line readings I've had in this entire series so far. Oh my it was God. so wrong. Oh it was no. like, what? Okay, well, I just want you to know that in my video reactions, I basically recreate you doing that <laughs> scene. And then nice. instead of saying it's home, I turn around and I go, it's the home. It's because I throw the in there nice, as a joke. Nice. So, that, so I'm so sorry that you felt that it was the it was worst horrible. line reading. And I'm going to say right now, I did not think that. I did not think well, that's that. That's good. I, I think it's still played. I think it's still played. But you know, you know that yes. it could have been better, clearly. So. Yeah, it just it didn't feel connected to the rest of the I hear you. as the flow I hear went. You. Uh, yep. But we do find out that there's Earth, and we find mm -hmm. out that it's 1996. Yes. Kim discovers, uh, uh, using astrometric readings, he discovers it's 96, but we also know because Tuvok has been picking up a multitude of narrow band EM signals, so all different types of communications, right? To avoid being uh, detected by surveillance satellites, because mm. um, 
I think maybe even Paris says, um, you know, back then, uh, because of his 20th century hobby knowledge that he had, uh, which is clearly imperfect as we find out later on. <laughs> but uh, he says they had surveillance satellites at this point. So yeah. we should get out of here. So we back off a little. But then we yeah. also find out that there's subspace frequencies that we detect. And I think Tuvok or someone says subspace technology wouldn't shouldn't be invented for another hundred years. I think you said that. Did I say actually. that? Yeah. Somebody said that. that up. Somebody did. Yeah. Subspace technology. I just wrote down that that line because that's a big what's going on moment for all of us. Yeah. We're like something that, doesn't fit here. Right. And that predicates the away mission. Right. Yep. And you were chosen for the away mission because you are a 20th century aficionado, according yeah, Jan to Janeway. And Janeway says, as we get to the turbo lift, she's like, how are we going to pass? And my response is simple, nice clothes, fast cars, and lots of money, lots of money, which is interesting in the, in the um, scheme of Starfleet, because there is no money, you know, we did Correct. You Correct. know, that's very foreign to all of us. It as, is. As Starfleet and 24th century, you know, beings. Um, yeah. That the Federation, we don't, there's no money. There's replicators and every, all of our needs are taken care of. So that's a completely foreign concept for all of everyone, yeah. except for you. You understand it because you've been studying 20th century, right? Yeah. Janeway, um, when she says to Kim, like, you know, you have the bridge. Kim is so excited. Kim's just like, yes, ma'am. Like he's so like, dun, da, da, da. well, dude, dude, you take over that bridge pretty hardcore for this episode. I do, but actor Garrett Wong was, I do not want to be on this bridge. I want to be on the Santa Monica Pier with Robbie and Tim <laughs> Russ and, and Beltran. And none of that happened. So in the next scene, we're in Los Angeles. We're down on the boardwalk. On the pier. On the, the by pier. the pier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We see all these wacky people. We see yes. people and we see a guy, by the way, with a boom box and a yes. headband with speakers. And I was yes. like, what? I've never <laughs> seen that. Like, did we invent <laughs> that for this show? No. Yes. And motor <laughs> motorcycles coming down the boardwalk. I'm like, no, motorcycles don't go down the boardwalk in no. 1996. No. no. Well, you know uh, what I, I wrote down, Robbie? I wrote down, I said, there seems to be something a little bit off with each background actor, yeah. starting with the young man rollerblading with a boombox strapped around his neck. There's something a little bit off is that he has two portable speakers strapped to his head, which no one does. Okay? No one ever did. And, I've never seen that you look that a little before. further, yeah. No. And then you look a little past the rollerblading guy. You see a young woman with a bikini on and high heels. Now, at the beach... <laughs> Nobody wears high heels. They wear flip-flops, you know, yeah. sandals. That's typical beach wear, right? So that was a little off there. Then you have a girl sitting on a skateboard playing the guitar. Then a young lady walks in with two Rottweilers. Well, they clearly were trying to amplify the kookiness of Venice Beach and the yes. beach, you know, the Los yes. Angeles beach culture. And they right. went way over the top. And then they we, went over the top. Yeah. And then the crane goes up to us you know, Tuvok and Paris and Janeway and Chakotay up on the pier looking down at all this craziness. Tuvok says, we could have worn our Starfleet uniforms. I yes. doubt anyone would have noticed, Tuvok says. Well, I want to ask you, did you notice that the guy on the Harley, he's not dressed like a Harley, like a Harley, he's not dressed like a motorcycle rider. He's dressed right. like a hippie. 
He's like the Harley hippie guy, which you don't see that combination yeah. very often, right? Yeah. The Asian tourist with the camera. And he's got, instead of black socks, white socks with sandals. Nobody wears white socks. So that was the weird thing there. <laughs> there was a um, lot of... And I wanted to ask you, I know when you're on Venice, there's all these vendors selling sunglasses and whatnot. Yeah. At the Santa Monica Pier, are there also those vendors like no, that? No, they sort I mean, of brought for our show, they yeah. brought the Venice Beach culture up to the Santa Monica To Pier Santa Monica is what they because did. Exactly. really mm -hmm. the same neighborhoods but i think they were trying to combine that culture yes. by the peers i do remember by the way when we were filming this i feel mm. like it was in july it was really hot yeah it would have been i think late july or august mm. maybe but it okay. was hot even though it's the beach and there's breezes and stuff and they had put this like blue light blue tank top and shirt on me but i, I remember i kept having to switch <laughs> out the tank top because i would start sweating and just getting these sweat marks all over it. And I'd have to sweat stain. Yeah. Yeah. You don't really see it in the cut. Well, the show itself a little bit right. now and then, you, but it was hot. No. It, yeah. It's not noticeable. They obviously got the, all of that sweat uh, marks out of there, but let's just talk about the wardrobe. Okay. Of you guys. Let's just start. Like I'm looking at Chakotay and Janeway and they honestly look like a revised version of Crockett and Tubbs from Miami Vice. Yeah. Miami okay, Vice. The totally. old eighties TV show. That's what they look like. Tuvok with his do rag. And, and I, I don't know what else is going on. He's got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. And then what on earth is Paris wearing? He's got a Hawaiian shirt. He's got he's dad. got dad jeans. You're wearing these work boots. You know those work boots that mm -hmm. that everyone used to wear. And it's just it's almost like they took three different styles and put it into one person into Paris. You know, yeah. it was so confusing. Yeah, it was confusing. That. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> was the dad jeans were the biggest tragedy. I, oh, I'm God. sorry. They were oh just goodness. horrible jeans. But Janeway sends you <laughs> Janeway sends you guys down to check the shoreline. Okay, now. This begins what I think is some of the funniest stuff in this episode is the whole Tuvok Paris banter or interaction. <laughs> you two would have made an excellent buddy cop team, okay? I mean, the straight by the book cop Tuvok and the rebellious kind of maverick cop. So you guys are really the revised version of Murtaugh and Riggs played by Danny Glover and Mel Gibson in the 80s blockbuster film series, Lethal Weapon. That's what you guys are right? In, in uh -huh, my estimation. Uh -huh. Okay. I love those, those scenes with you and Tuvok. I, so far of all the pairings of different, you know, series regulars, this, this one is now my favorite. I like it really? a lot. Yes. Yeah. We were pretty wack. We were kind of goofy. Oh my um, God. Take your shirt off. You tell Tuvok to take your shirt off. <laughs> Come on, take your shirt off. Funny. Tuvok says he does not want to risk exposing himself to dermal dysplasia. And I say, don't be a hypochondriac. Janeway talked about Los Angeles had sunk underwater yes. during the Hermosa quake of 2047. <laughs> yeah, Hermosa, so there now, is no... Hermosa, Hermosa Beach is uh, one of the neighborhoods in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. The Hermosa quake of 2047. Well, that's not that far away, Garrett. So Is it tw you know, 2027 or 2047? 2047, but I'm just no, saying like... It's coming up. It's That seemed like you know, lifetimes away from us when we made this. And now I'm like, yeah. 2047, that's uh, not that far away. It's kind of around the corner. We also see Chakotay 
and Janeway, and they're talking about subspace readings coming from a homeless guy. So they start to follow this homeless guy. So they go follow him, and that's kind of Mm -hmm. curious. And we meet Sarah Silverman for the first time, her character, Rain Robinson. Um, I loved, as they introduced her, the slow pan across all the monster movies and the Mm -hmm. kind of... uh, fandom stuff that's everywhere i thought it was great the monster movie posters were awesome and i like the set design definitely yeah the old Um, tech by the way i have a feeling i thought about it as we panned across some of those controls the tech controls and things sure those things were rented from a place called modern props it was a prop house in los angeles and they had a lot of this old controls for technology you know old stuff Mm -hmm. i bet you this would be a challenge for the fans i bet you if you look at the the stuff that was in front of rain robinson in this episode i bet you can find those same things in the captain proton episode when they rented the old looking tech for for dr chaotica's oh uh, fortress of doom and things like that i bet okay it's the same prop house i bet yeah I bet you they rented the same kind of stuff. But I thought, yeah, it was a great, great looking set they designed for Rain Robinson. Is the alliteration intentional? You know, Sarah Silverman, both beginning with S, Rain Robinson, both beginning with R. I wonder if this is something that Brandon was just like, hey, you know what? Let's just call her by a name that has the same. wonder if they had, you know, cast her or thought of her as they developed this show, this episode, or Mm -hmm. if they wrote it and then you know, picked her to play the role. Interesting. I don't remember yeah. how she got cast. I'm not sure. The other thing I noticed when they, when they looked at the monitors themselves and mm-hmm. you see some of the, the playback on the monitor, you know, the, the data on the, on the monitor screen. Yeah. That was an actual uh, playback, meaning that they were playing that video live as we filmed it. Usually on the bridge on our show, we would do what's called a burn in, you know, we would film like up by your console on the bridge. We would film a section of that but we would burn in the the graphics they would be created later uh this was playback on a real monitor which was very rare for us and also it was graphics in the style of what was current at that time in 1996 and as i looked at mm. it i was like oh my god this reminds me of my first computer which was an atari st that was my first computer and oh the, wow the atari st had graphics that looked just like, like that, that. But so did the Apple computer, you know, it had very similar graphics. Um, it just, it reminded me of how primitive the graphics were in 1996 yeah. of what we were looking at in, in those days. Um, Why do you think they didn't use a burn-in on that particular day? I think because it was a, it was a current monitor that, you know, the, the kinds of monitors that we used because we were in 1996. Oh, story, it was a usable one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was a working monitor. Okay. Yep. That yeah. makes sense. Whereas that on the bridge, sense. we have these sort of, you know, blank spaces and yeah. places to put, put graphics that aren't real monitors. I love when she was like, no way. And then she looks at it a little longer and she's like, <laughs> way. Way. <laughs> we're moving on to Starling's Chronoworks office, uh, the headquarters. Starling is in a meeting with a semiconductor chip manufacturer. The meeting is interrupted by the voice of a male assistant named Dave that Rain Robinson is calling in. Now, did you notice that voice sounded a lot like Dave Rossi? Was it Dave Rossi? That's I'm so pretty funny. sure it was Dave Rossi. Yes. Because <laughs> I'm sitting so there Dave going, Rossi worked in the production office. He hmm. eventually became Rick Berman's assistant. But he yeah. had started as a PA in the office. He just worked the desks and 
made coffee and did that sort of thing, worked his way all the way up to Rick Berman's assistant. And I think eventually a producer credit on Enterprise, maybe even on our show. He, he uh, was a very, very much a, you know, important part of, of getting the show done, making the show. And uh, that's funny if that was Dave Rossi. I love it. Yeah. That's awesome. If yeah. it was. Dave, Dave, Dave's a great guy. I mean, he definitely was, you know, we, all the actors enjoyed interacting with Dave Rossi. So, yeah. and I'm almost positive that is his voice. And that's I sat there funny. laughing when I heard this. I'm like, this is crazy. Then we have the reveal of the tattoo on the inside of Starling's wrist as he pours himself a glass of water. And that's, you know, evidently to tell anybody in the audience who doesn't know this is the same hippie from the beginning, from the opening of this episode. A bad, bad rain. She disobeys Starling and transmits the standard SETI greeting to the Voyager bridge, basically. Right? Yeah. Well, I think it's just to back up just a beat, a half a beat there. Yeah. I think it's important because rain calls. So Dave, perhaps Dave Rossi calls, says, mm -hmm. you've got this call from a rain Robinson. And Ed Begley yeah. or Starling says, put her through. So, you know, uh-oh. Yeah. And she says, hey, Mr. Starling, you know, I know you funded the renovation of the observatory. You funded this. And you kind of told me privately, like, I should let you know. So I'm letting you know. And he's like, don't tell anybody. Right. But you know, he's a bad, like, he's, you know, using his money and influence to try to get this information and keep it quiet. Speaking of Starling um, funding the, you know, the renovation of, of the observatory in real life, did you know that Leonard Nimoy actually was a major contributor yes. to the remodel of the observatory? I, did I thought that, that was a really cool yeah. side fact. When you're watching this whole thing with ChronoWorks, who does Starling remind you of? Like, who would you say Starling is? It's is, Steve Jobs. Is, okay. It's either Microsoft co-founder or it's either Apple founder. One of the two. You know, is what I, was I don't think it's Bill Gates. I think it's Steve Jobs because Steve Jobs was a hippie. He was kind of a hippie guy. And I don't know. I, I feel like it's Steve Jobs. Okay. Um, yeah. Right. Although he is... He is trying to release, he says, like this new computer is is the, I forget, I wrote it down, but it's the Hyper Pro PC, Hyper Pro PC, um, which feels more like a Microsoft kind of thing or something. Yeah, maybe it's a, a, a hybrid between the two. Maybe it's a hybrid, yeah. Torres and Kim are back on the bridge. They pick up a signal directed towards them and it shows a SETI greeting from Robinson, Rain Robinson at the observatory. Mm -hmm. This could be a bit of trivia there, Robbie. The trivia is when on Voyager do you see a couple completely nude? <laughs> I don't and it's know. From this, from the the SETI greeting, the SETI greeting has a depiction, a drawing of a male and a female standing there, really? and they're completely oh, they're 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 completely. Oh, I nude. didn't notice. So that. yeah, that is the that's the trivia there. Um, yeah. But at the end of this, one of the uh, people on the bridge asks, should we respond? And Harry says, absolutely not. Do right. not respond. Yeah. Yeah. So that's sort of yeah, where yeah. we leave that. Okay, so now we're back in Santa Monica. We have Janeway, Chicote, Paris, and Tuvok are trailing the homeless man. Mm -hmm. That's when Janeway received a transmission from Harry Kim, acting captain of the USS Voyager. And... Uh, <laughs> the conversation between Janeway and Kim, basically that we've been discovered, a signal has been sent to uh, the bridge from uh, a location, uh, which is 
the observatory. We figured that out. Yeah. And so Janeway asked Harry, acting captain of the USS Voyager, to beam Tuvok and Paris to the observatory. But I then informed the captain that we cannot, the transporters are down. So, um, you know, uh, Tuvok and Paris are on their own. They're going to have to figure out how to get over there. By the way, did you notice that when she gets the incoming transmission from you and from the, me, yep, that the little noise uh, with the extras in the background, everybody stops and they look at their phones and everybody's. No. Oh, yeah. Really? I remember I that. I remember that. that bit when when David Livingston, who was directing, and I think Adele may have been the AD on this, but uh, yeah, they were telling all the extras like, you know, we're going to call, you know ring ring noise or whatever and then everybody's supposed to look down like look at their phones their phones <laughs> funny i love bit. that yeah i love that paris then informs uh, the captain that nobody walks in los angeles and they don't have much of a public transportation system here so yeah. we're gonna need some wheels and that's that's my favorite paris line we're gonna need some wheels in this yeah. entire episode <laughs> now when you said nobody walks in los angeles did you immediately think about the 80s song by missing persons Walking in LA. Do you remember no, that song? I did not, so, but that's yeah, okay. a good one. Needs, we need some wheels. And, and uh, she basically says, do what you got to do. She basically yeah. told me to go steal a car. All right. She, I just wanna, she did not honest. say that. You, you interpreted it as stealing well, let's a be car. Honest. The captain <laughs> says, do what you got to do. How else am I going to get a car? <laughs> Fine. So Fine. she's encouraging so car theft, she, auto yes. theft. Yeah. Okay, we'll go with that. And uh, Chakotay and Janeway follow Braxton to an alley where his homeless shelter is located. By the way, he that alley, social that, workers. That yes. alley was filmed at Paramount Studios. That oh, alley, so that, that was not in was Santa not Monica. Filmed in okay. Santa Monica. Okay. Yeah. By the way, I did drive down to Santa Monica that day when you guys filmed all those scenes. Yep. And I got there in time to see them loading the trucks. So you guys had all been released. And I was, you know, part of me, I was sitting there lounging around, not having to work. I was up in my my house up in the hills and I'm sitting there going, hmm, I think I want to go visit Robbie and, and, and the gang and see what's going on. And so I get there. And I'm just seeing some some grips loading equipment into a truck. Oh. And I go, what? I go, you guys wrapped already? They go, yeah, we wrapped. I'm and, telling you, um, it was hot. Yeah. We, everybody wanted to get out of there. It, we started very early um, because we had to be on the, on the uh, boardwalk. I remember mm -hmm. that. We were, it was really early in the morning so yeah. that we could have the boardwalk without real civilian people. Correct. Um, and just use yeah. our extras. So, yeah, I think that was a... Uh, an unusually short day for us. We didn't yeah. normally have short days like that. They're at the guy's homeless shelter. And well, he thinks basically that they are social workers trying to ask him questions until he re he recognizes it's Janeway. And then she realizes it's Captain Braxton. And Braxton informs Janeway that the future disaster slash explosion was caused by someone flying his time ship into the future without recalibrating the temporal matrix. Mm -hmm. um, this is important information. Now we realize Voyager did not cause this accident. It was the, the time yep. ship that caused it. And that's where we find out that it's Starling that has it. Realize it's Starling because we see a comm badge in his homeless clothes. That's right. That's right. He has a comm badge that Janeway finds. But we also realize that he didn't go down with the crashing ship. He did an emergency beam out. And yep. that's why he couldn't find the ship. And that's why Starling found it so quickly because he yep. happened to be there at the time that it crashed. They are interrupted because uh, the LAPD show up. 
And that's where Braxton calls the, the cop, the officer, the police officer, a quasi Cardassian totalitarian, <laughs> which then reminded me of the controversial NWA song, F-Bomb the Police. If you remember that, that was a yes. huge thing that they sang that song. And um, Robbie, if you and I were to start our own Voyager rap group, our release of our controversial song could be entitled F the quasi Cardassian totalitarians. That could be our rap song. <laughs> that would be a very wordy rap song. Yeah. <laughs> a little verbose in that title. Yes. It? A little okay. verbose. All right. ChronoWorks headquarters. Starling discovers that Rain has disobeyed him and told others, specifically a person, a friend at JPL, who then informed a professor at Caltech mm -hmm. about the emissions so that he orders Dunbar to retrieve the data and get rid of Rain. Get rid of her. Rid of her. He says, you may have to use the weapon. The weapon, yes. Ooh, Just like so the Voyager, know. there's the weapon. So um, we know they've got tech from the 29th century. So mm -hmm. they're mm -hmm. gonna have something like phasers or some version of that, yeah. Paris and Tuvok are at the observatory outside. There's another great exchange of banter between Paris now, and Tuvok. Now, by the mm. way, okay, so they drive up in this stolen, stolen Dodge truck. Ram pickup and there's you hear some dialogue in this crane shot. You hear some dialogue in the car and then they get out and they have a couple of words. They start walking towards the observatory and they have more banter. But I'm yeah. telling you, I believe that most of that banter was ADR, meaning it was not scripted. I don't think we said very much at all. I think we pulled up we had like two or three, two lines maybe. And then we walked towards the thing, but they wanted to cover, to add some more um, interesting dialogue so that they could stay in the shot longer where there wasn't any hmm. dialogue. So it was all added dialogue, additional dialogue yeah. added after the fact. And again, witty banter. It was enjoyable yeah. to listen to you guys go back and forth. You borrowed it is what you said, because you guys were test driving test the truck driving at a it. dealership yes. and you just kept on driving is yeah. what you did, right? Which was cute. They go in the lab. I loved that Paris picks up the snow globe and he sort of looks at it real close and he shakes it and kind of smiles. He's a 20th century aficionado. So he's probably... Yes heard about these snow globes but it felt yes. to me like that's someone who sees a thing from the past yes that he recognizes from his hobby but he's never seen one in person and he sort of enjoys right. it for a moment do you recall what was in the snow globe i feel like it was a florida it was i think it was an alligator and something with florida or something like that i can't remember this is something that i, I forgot to talk about fun facts earlier but evidently the snow globe has Gorn, the character Gorn. Really? The surfboard that we see earlier from one of the extras has McCoy on it. The black and white photo of Nixon and Starling shaking hands in his office is actually yeah. a retouched photo of Elvis Presley and Richard yes, Nixon. I think that from is From December of 1970. Yeah. Okay. Janeway refers to the late 20th century technology as stone knives and bearskins, a remark which echoes Spock's appraisal of 1930s technology relative to the 23rd century in TOS's The City on the Edge of Forever. Also in this episode, Tom Paris and Tuvok exit the observatory. I'm jumping ahead a little bit. When uh, Tuvok says, what does it mean, groovy? Which is a very similar question to Spock asking James T. Kirk when they're ejected from bus in the uh, Star Trek IV Voyage Home. What does it mean, exact change? 
So there's another, there's a, there's a, you know, <laughs> there's right. a parallel there. And also in this episode, Voyager's crew discovers that they are in the past because they cannot pick up Starfleet signals, but are receiving radio transmissions, which is the same occurrence that helps Captain Kirk and his crew determine that they're in the past in the episode of um, Tomorrow is Yesterday from the original series. Wow. The final one is um, Janeway says, for all I know, she could be my great, 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 great grandmother. This is when she's on the beach and they get bumped into by the, by the, that's right. Yeah. And Dr. Crusher um, has a line in Star Trek Next Generation, A Matter of Time, episode 1991. She says, anyway, I could be your great, 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 great grandmother. Both lines say great four times. So, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Just off of those fun facts, I would say watching this, that it was one of my favorite episodes so far in our entire series. It reminded me of Star Trek Two, was it? The movie? Star Trek, when they saved the whales, was that Star Trek Two? That's four. That's four. Four. Voyager. Star Trek Four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It reminded me of that. It reminded yeah. me of a classic Star Trek situation where it's sort of just using really smart and clever science fiction premises mm-hmm. to, um, you know, comment on the, our current world. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it did it in such a fun, it was really watchable. It was funny. You know, the sci-fi part of it felt great. It just, I don't know. It had great production value. I really love this episode so far. I know we're only halfway or partially. No, I, and I agree. And it really was. It's its a lot of echoes of Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, which yeah. was a supremely popular film directed by Leonard Nimoy. And this would be a good episode for someone who's trying to get their spouse or, you know, somebody who's not into Star Trek to watch a Star Trek episode just to yeah. give them sort of like, oh, okay, you, you have a reference of a frame of reference of modern day, well, 1996, as modern as that can be now, but it's still, it's not the future, right? So yes, yeah, I agree with you. This is definitely a great episode. It's great. Do you remember um, being so messy and tossing those readout reports all over the place carelessly? I don't remember that, but it was a nice detail. And and there's mm-hmm. Chewbacca saying we have to leave the place exactly as we found it. Very prime directive of him and, and smart. Mm-hmm. I love when Rain walks in with her pizza boxes and Paris says, yeah, this lab's pretty groovy. It's like you got, it's like, you know, 20th century, but you're mixing up decades in the 20th century, right? And then he says, throwing groovy up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then he says something about the orgy of the walking dead that he really really loves it. And I was like, whoa, that's kind of kinky. Tom Paris says to Rain, he goes, you know, your curves don't look so good. Right. So an example of like, he's not really up to date on, you know, slang and what he is kind of saying he doesn't even realize what he doesn't get it no but i love that you're flirting with her with science in order for tuvok to kind of maneuver behind her to uh use his tricorder to download the data when he started walking behind her my first thought was wait a minute does he vulcan nerve pinch rain and and you know make her unconscious but no he's he's doing the whole tricorder downloading bit um, but this whole interaction was a little bit awkward for me because you guys are at the door and she's like, nice meeting you. And then you, you, you guys are both basically written off by rain. Like she's like, okay, bye guys. And yet you still walk up and you introduce yourself. And I just wish that there was a little bit more organic way of showing how she starts to trust you. You know what I'm saying? Cause it, she yeah. seems very sort of like, you know, uh, who are you strangers? Who are your strangers? And then. Um, all of a sudden, she, out of the blue, she's like, hey, come to my showing of my, you know, uh, on Tuesday or whatever. I think it, it was when he says, 
you know, your curves don't look so great. And then he starts talking mm -hmm. science and she's science, like, wow, yeah. you know a lot about science. And, right. and then, and then Tom Paris goes, yeah, well, I graduated uh, from Starfleet Academy or something. You know, she asked where he went to school. <laughs> yeah. Where's that college at? She's yeah. Like, you're what? like, that's on the East coast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's uh, East coast school. Yeah. That works for me because truly the left coast never really knows what the East coast is up to. And the East coast doesn't know what the left, the West coast is up to. I just call it the left coast, but you know, you know where I'm coming from. I do. Um, but I guess the interaction was weird or awkward when, when you guys are leaving kind of, and then you come back in to introduce yourself like that to me, I felt like maybe the script could have been different or something. I don't know the blocking. I've just, I just felt like that was the only thing that bothered me about that scene. I, I, the one thing I liked about that scene is as Tom's leaving, you know, and this is mm -hmm. before he and Bellana become a couple. So right. it felt like it was actually a sincere sort of interest in this girl, Rain, from Tom Perry. Okay. He really okay. was, thought she was funky and funny and all those things in a way that the first couple of seasons, most of his interactions romantically or with, with women were manipulative or, mm -hmm. I mean, and he's also being manipulative here and trying to, you know, accomplish yes. his mission, but... He's sort of accidentally getting intrigued by this human, this person that he's just met. And I thought it was sincere. It was, I thought it was nicely, I was happy with the way I played it. I would like the way the scene was structured and scripted. And I liked, I liked the way that we kind of left. And then we go out to the truck and she runs out and she's like, yeah, wait a minute, my computer's all broken. And what did you do? Yeah. And right on the heels of that, you know, Paris says red alert because the bad guy's yeah. coming out. And uh, they have their little shootout. The fatal system error message that pops up on her screen with the skull and crossbones. What did that remind you of? I don't know. What? The movie Independence Day, when Jeff Goldblum's character uploads a virus to the alien mothership and the computer system has a similar error message that pops up on screen. <laughs> really? I'm being so nerdy right now. You are <laughs> such a nerd. <laughs> Right. And okay. you know, I, I remembered, I made a note right before uh, bad guy comes out and the phaser fight yeah. starts. I love when Sarah Silverman says to, to Tuvok, what is that thing in your pants? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's that? Did she say, what's that little thing in your pants or something? I don't like know. That? I say, don't know. It was, it was very it was, funny. What's that thing in your pants? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then Tuvok in that shootout displays his superior reflexes and his marksmanship. He, he shoots the dead gum phaser out of out the guy's of hand, hand. Yeah. and i think that was a stunt double that did the forward roll or was that tim you were there that day i think that was tim i think tim, tim did, did the it. forward roll yes. oh yeah he he rolls and he loses his bandana and then he puts the the thing back on to cover because right. he's got to cover his vulcan ears, his ears. and yeah. then uh we get rain's um her her van and VW we, van. Yeah, and then, and then the van is kind of screeching around the corner as Tuvok jumps inside. Now those no, were that all, was a stunt. That right? was stunt doubles. Okay. That was not Thank only you. was that uh, Tuvok stunt double. That was a Paris stunt double driving and a Rain stunt double inside. I think my stunt driver was a, a stuntman named Merritt Yonka, who eventually became our stunt coordinator on Chuck oh, for many years. Merritt did it. Okay. And Merritt just passed yeah. away last year, so uh, I just want to give a shout oh. out to Merritt who I think did that driving in that scene. I think Tuvok stunt double got injured. Did you notice did. when he jumped? Yeah, when he jumped into yeah, the van, him, the van hits, him. oh, it hits him really square on the side of his hip or maybe his, uh, his, his lower torso. It looked painful. Yeah. It looked like, yeah. oh, that didn't look good.
All right, so we see Voyagers now in orbit, and we hear a voiceover um, of Kim saying, Operations Officer's Log Supplemental. That's the very first time that Kim has made a, an officer's log. Yeah. Um, he has been ordered, yeah, he's ordered Neelix and Kess to monitor all the media broadcasts to see if anyone else is, uh, uh, has knowledge of Voyager being there. Neelix is mesmerized by soap operas. And not only could he have been watching your soap opera, he could have watched Kate's soap opera. Kate Mulgrew. Mary Ryan. Ryan's oh, Hope. Yeah. Ryan's Hope. That would have been wonderful if he said, I found this soap opera called Ryan's Hope. I thought it was interesting that, that Kess and Neelix talk about their love for linear narrative that yeah it was oh it was almost like a writer's <laughs> it was like brandon braga had written in here the importance of storytelling like a tv show like voyager or a soap opera yeah. like yeah you know that yeah yes. sure inner you know harry says i like the interactive holodeck narratives mm -hmm. where you mm -hmm. can interact with them and kessany looks like yeah but Linear narratives are also have a lot of value. <laughs> yeah, they're patting themselves on their back right there. We're back to the Chronoworks headquarters. Jane Winch, Kotiev snuck into the building after hours, trying to enter a password on the Starling's computer. Janeway calls it stone knives and bearskins. And the question is, Robbie, why didn't Janeway use the tricorder to interface in the first place? Yeah, I don't know I why love she starts typing she's like that. trying to type. <laughs> And uh, Chakotay says, you know, you yeah. obviously didn't take uh, typing lessons or something. Right, right. But then, of course, later we see her typing very quickly. So she's adapted very quickly. Yes, she adapted. Um, we go back to, to the uh, Paris, Tuvok, and Rain uh, uh -huh. scene in the VW. Was that Melrose Boulevard, Robbie, that you guys are driving I can't remember. Now? I can't remember if it was Hollywood Boulevard or Melrose. It might have been Melrose. Yeah. It looked like Melrose, just right outside of Paramount Studios. I don't remember that Studios. scene okay. at all. I don't remember all right. it at all. Yeah, okay. it could have been, could have been, or Santa Monica yeah. Boulevard, maybe, yeah, or even Venice Boulevard, you know, or Main Street down. Probably Venice. was very close. We probably, mm -hmm. you know, loaded up on the, the rigs that they use at the studio. Right. So probably the same day that you guys filmed uh, at the pier. Maybe you went to another location in LA maybe. and shot a night. Yeah, we might have done the night shot, work. Maybe. Yeah. I loved okay. how Paris claims that the signal that they're picking up is uh, probably a KGB satellite <laughs> from the Soviets, you know, and he's using his memory of, you know, 20th century technology to try to, uh, you know, sound legit. And she's like, yeah. the Soviet Union broke up five years ago, dude. <laughs> so he gets his history off a little bit. No, but your response is great. You're like, well, as far as you know, they broke. I mean, everything yeah, she that's... said, you had an answer for, which was great. Yeah, <laughs> Love yeah that. that's right. That's what they want you to think. Back in Starling's office, we discover Starling has been uh, reverse engineering the technology from Braxton's timeship. Jane Winchicote discovered that the timeship is in a hangar bay right next to the office. Um, Starling and Dunbar come back and capture yeah. Janeway and Chakotay. Uh, Kim, Kim contacts Janeway and starts basically uploading Starling's entire database. Starling threatens to kill Janeway if Kim doesn't stop. By the way, I, I love when Janeway was talking about time travel when she was hacking Starling's computer. And she said, she said, quote, since my first day on the job as a Starfleet captain, I swore I'd never let myself get caught up in one of these godforsaken paradoxes. <laughs> The future is the past and the past is the future. And it all gives me a headache. Yeah. And she sort of gestures yeah, yeah. and uh, I love that line. Yes. So when Kim knows that Janeway's be life is being threatened, that's when he kind of decides to talk to, uh, to Torres, your future love, about what to do. And 
Torres is like, it's up to you. You're the acting captain. And so Kim makes the decision to drop lower in altitude and save Janeway and Chakotay. Well, and we do. down into Earth's mm-hmm. atmosphere, 10 kilometers above the, the Earth's surface so that they can That's beam them fault. aboard. And yes. they beam them aboard just in the nick of time. And Janeway's not mad at me. You th- you'd think she'd be really pissed at me for doing that, but yeah. I saved her butt, basically. But at the meantime, we tried to transport the time ship onto Voyager. And then, of course, Starling does something to interrupt the transport, but also uses the beam that we're transporting to download Voyager's database, which I thought, wow, that's a really cool idea. If he is 500 years more advanced, if he has technology from 500 years in the future of Voyager, then yeah, uh, he probably does know how to do crazy things like download our computer our co- tra- yeah. and control our, our, our ship, basically, uh, from his, uh, his computer and um, really, really start messing mess things up. So we end that, that uh, transport entirely to stop him from stealing our database but unfortunately yeah. he, he does steal he, one thing he, he said he got 20 he's he's he says to janeway that he's got home field advantage because he's got a 29th century technology and and we mm-hmm. only have 24th century and mm-hmm. uh and then kess says that uh, the doctor is missing and we cut to uh suddenly in starling's <laughs> office we see that the doctor is there which by the way there are no hollow projectors in Starling, like how did you know we don't have the mobile emitter yet like maybe you know starling downloaded the doctor's hollow program but the reason the doctor is in sick bay and only sick bay is there are hollow image imaging projectors all over sick bay i'm going to assume that because he has 29th century technology he does have hollow projectors in his office I'm okay. going to assume that. That's the okay. only explanation because otherwise the doctor would not been been able to have materialized in front of him, right? He would have stayed a program inside the computer. He couldn't have exited and formulated, you know, formed himself yeah. as the doctor. And then we had a message from Neelix who's been monitoring media transmissions. And there's a news report showing footage, video footage that someone took from their backyard barbecue of yep. Voyager <laughs> skimming along, which looked good. I like that. Uh, graphic. I thought uh, it was very it was well done. Uh, well done. Vis effects. Yeah, it felt very legit, very authentic, especially considering we did it in 1996. Yeah, so we go off of uh, Janeway staring at the view screen in shock and knowing that they have uh, been discovered and and also that they've altered history. Like, you know, we can't remove ourselves from the consequences of being discovered. Right. So that's a the prime effect. Prime directive. The prime directive has been uh, basically violated. In and this way. whole paradox of, you know, the past is the future and the future is the past. Like now it's, mm-hmm. it's all exposed. It's become a reality. Yeah. yeah. So that's how this episode ends. It ends on this cliffhanger. What's your theme on this? My theme, puppy? I wrote down simply, disrupting time is a bad idea. <laughs> that's my theme. Whenever you mess with time, things get messy. So that's my theme. Okay. All right. So yeah. So for me, I guess my theme would be more of a comical one. Just Mm -hmm. take all those nineties clothes and burn them. (laughs) That's the, (laughs) that's the only lesson I have, you know, get, get rid of the dad. Take take Um, the dad jeans and destroy (laughs) them forever. And the pattern you made them from. (laughs) Uh, Yes. I like that. Oh my goodness. That was a fun episode. That was really fun. I can't wait to see part two. Mm-hmm, so many, mm-hmm. so many memories came back watching that episode. So uh, 
Yes. Thank you guys for joining us. Yes, Robbie and I are are super excited about this episode and about the next episode. So stay tuned next week when we review Future Zen Part 2. For all of our lovely Patreon patrons, please stay tuned for your bonus material. Mm -hmm.